I remember vividly one evening when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old or so, my family set out on a leisurely after-dinner walk. And at the end of the block, there lived a terribly broken family. They had a couple of dogs that apparently suffered even more neglect than the children did. And as we walked past that property, one of those dogs bolted across the lawn in attack mode. <clears throat> my, my dad uh, took a strong stand between his family as we cowered behind him and the snarling dog bared its fangs. Neither the dog nor my dad yielded an inch of ground for what seemed to be a very, very long time. That snarling dog crouched, its legs coiled to lunge at any moment to get whoever it could. Finally, the owner called off the dog and we went on our way shaken but unharmed. A defender standing in the gap between harm and those he's protecting is a pretty legendary theme in human history. It plays out in the mundane, such as in this account. It plays out on many other levels. Levels: The Battle of Verdun, World War I, French General Robert Nivelle rallied his troops with the slogan, They shall not pass. The slogan found its way onto propaganda posters and uniform badges to rally people around the cause, expressing the determination to stand against the enemy and to defend France at all cost. For some, it's already in your head. In a famous scene from Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf stand, takes his stand on a bridge between his escaping friends and the hideous, snarling Balrog intent on killing the cohort in a fiery rage. And standing alone between his friends and the Balrog, Gan Gandalf yells at the creature, You cannot pass. There are really plenty of such heroes in the Bible. We could pile account upon account of individuals who are in this very place. But in Scripture, there is also, additionally, a twist on the theme. A defender stands against a threatening force, but on these occasions, the danger is God. A priest stands between sinful people on the one hand and the just wrath of a holy God on the other hand. In such scenes, the priest offers no demands, of course. He does not rebuke God. He does not resist God. But the priest takes his stand to mediate between a holy God and people who deserve judgment for breaking God's law, for spurning His goodness and despising His glory. <clears throat> As we continue to track with the Israelites on their journey from Egyptian slavery to the promised land of Canaan, we've watched this scene play out several times by this point. And we find it again emphasized significantly here in Numbers chapter 16, as we have come in our journey to verse 36. 
But having not gathered around this text last week, let me remind us of the scene. Numbers chapter 16 and verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy. And will bring him near to him. And one whom he chooses, the one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to Himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that He has brought you near Him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? God has done such great things for Levi. Privilege them, but they want more. Therefore, verse 11, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, And they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these people? You're not going to blind us anymore. We know your game. We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them. I have not harmed one of them, which is what a prince might do. I'm a priest not a prince. 
And Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow, and let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it, and every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers. You also and Aaron each his censer, so every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent with Moses and Aaron. And Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? They stand between the sinner and the judgment of God. In verse 23, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sin. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, And that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, they die a natural death, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, into the realm of the dead, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at the cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men Offering the incense. In verses 1 through 35, we have the first of three narratives demonstrating and defending the high priestly role of Aaron. The point is clear God has established the priesthood, 
He has established the ritual system of sacrifice and observance. And he has worked into the nation this expiatory function. That is this atonement for sin. This forgiveness of sin through the work of the priest, through their sacrifice and the system that he set in place. So we cannot read these verses without understanding, of course, that Korah's rebellion is an assault against God's chosen high priest. And you can't do that, God says. You cannot do that and live. That's scene one. We come then to the second scene. There will be a third in chapter 17. But we come to the second scene then in support of God's priesthood, beginning at verse 36. And God here in this first scene appoints, or the second, this second scene, the second occasion, in this first line, He appoints a sobering memorial to the rebellion that has just taken place. Verse 36, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze. Then scatter the fire far and wide, for they have become holy. So God assigns here Aaron's son, Eliezer, the grisly task of rooting through the ashes of these incinerated leaders and collecting their metal censers. We don't know what they look like, but they work something like this. They were made of metal that could be burned and not melt, and they, um, at least to, to some degree, and the coals from the altar were placed inside, so they were kept warm there and burning, and then incense placed on top of that to burn and create this smell, this aroma as the smoke ascended, a picture of prayer and of worship before the Lord. These censers have become holy. How do you hear that phrase? The censers were consecrated to God in false worship, and they're also consecrated to God in judgment. Now we think of holiness as consecrated unto moral purity, unto God Himself, something like that, and that is right. But here the sense is that they're consecrated to God in judgment. They have been part of this whole scene, this situation, and they are now under what the Old Testament refers to at times as the ban, which we will see much more in the the book of Joshua as the Israelites go into the land and uh, those uh, defeated nations are given over to the ban. They are made holy unto God in judgment. That's the case here with these censors. So if I could say it practically, God doesn't want people picking through the ashes and taking these censers and turning them into some mundane, common, profane use of one sort or the other. Eliezer is even to scatter the coals out of respect to the judgment that has fallen. So even the fire itself cannot be put to common use. God then gives a very unusual instruction for how the metal from the censers actually is to be used. Verse 38, As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar, for they offered them before the Lord and they became holy. These censers, thus they shall be a sign to the people 
of Israel. The metal so is then to be hammered thin into sheets. And these sheets of bronze are to be applied as an overlay on the bronze altar of sacrifice. Just to gain our, our setting again as the encamped nation around the tabernacle and then taking a look at the inside of the tabernacle and the bronze altar of burnt offering there out of bronze. Now these censers, hammered thin, are in some way to be placed upon that altar, to be banged onto it and shaped and formed onto it in some form. Why this sign? It is first of all a memorial to Israel's sin. It's a vivid, even ominous reminder of God's judgment and how appropriate at the altar of sacrifice for sin that they would come and remember this sin. It is secondly a warning never to disrespect the priesthood that God had established. So a reminder and a warning. Verse 40 Verse 39, I think I need to read that, but uh, Elias the priest took the bronze censers which those who were burned had offered and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord lest he become like Korah and his company as the Lord said to him through Moses. Fairly clear and evident here. Think of the book of Leviticus. The priesthood is a big deal to God. It should be a big deal to His people. It is the primary means by which sinful people approach Him and approach Him on His terms. God established then the Aaronic priesthood. He set the boundaries around the holy presence at the tabernacle. He established the ritual system by which sinners could approach Him through the priest's mediation. And no one was to mess with that plan. This was the thing that was made so crystal clear to Israel through the Levitical system. Her sin, the holiness of God, and the approach to God on His terms. They could not miss this truth. As the Lord had said to Eliezer, by way of instruction, so he performed what God had said. So God appoints a sobering memorial to the rebellion to make the point clear that he is God, that he determines the priesthood, that he determines the way of approach to him. And there's, there's kind of a feeling right at this point of sad calm. God's discipline has ended. Israel grieves. She's positioned to draw close to God in chastened repentance. This rebellion was serious. But God has been merciful. The priests have intervened, and the Lord has spared the nation. And you just hope, as you think about it, that people go back to their tents that night and say, God is awesome. It's horrible what's happened to us today. The earth has opened up and swallowed some in judgment. And fire has come from heaven and consumed the rebels. 
but God is awesome. He has made clear to us the way of salvation to trust His way. He has made it clear that Aaron is His priest and this is God's way. That's not what happens in the tents that night. Tragically, a very different spirit spreads through the camp. And in verses 41 and 42, we see Israel grumbles against God's priest, amazingly. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. We say at times that truth is stranger than fiction. Now, this is one of those times. They just watched the earth swallow Korah's clan when he rebelled against Moses and Aaron's authority. They just witnessed God incinerate 250 leaders who resisted Moses and Aaron's leadership. They should be on their faces in reverent fear but they grumble against Moses and Aaron. And their charge is you have killed the people of Yahweh, the people of the Lord. The truth is verse 22. Moses and Aaron had interceded for the people before God. They did not execute the rebels. God did. They were not the reason the rebels died. They were the reason the rest of Israel did not die. Yet Israel levels this unjust charge against them. It's really idiotic at its core. Moses and Aaron had no more capacity to incinerate 250 people or open the ground to swallow individuals than they they had. This judgment was all God's doing. Were they not so beclouded by bitterness they could have spared Moses and Aaron the trouble and just leveled their attack against God directly? But this is often the burden of spiritual leadership on some level, and particularly when you're in the position of Moses and Aaron with these many people. People blame their spiritual leaders for what God has done then claim to speak for God as they rage against those leaders. This is the irrational mudslide stage of grumbling when it can no longer be stopped. It's no longer rational. It just moves now with bitterness. No matter what has happened, Moses and Aaron are the fault, are at fault. There's no way to stop it. Well, maybe there's one, and that's verse 42. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. And behold, the the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Their grumblings ring through the air while the glory cloud of God's presence ominously lowers to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. As the brilliance of God's glory appears at the tabernacle, God's priests look imploringly to Him for aid. 
And those who attack God's priests are about to find out what God thinks, as if they cared. Moving to verse 43, we see God's priests mediate between God and these irrational grumblers. Verse 43, And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. Notice here that it is clear the entire nation is guilty. There were Aaronic priests who were not part of the rebellion. Some of Korah's sons survived it and apparently took a different position. And we would imagine that there were some faithful Israelites throughout. But the 250 representatives of Israel apparently spoke for everyone. At least in the most general sense They had embraced the spirit of Korah's rebellion. What's really going on is that they are rebelling against God. They're going to do their own thing and go their own way. What happens next is as stunning as it is heroic. Where we find Moses and Aaron falling on their face in prayerful intercession. As unfairly as they have been treated... As godless as this attack was by the people, they appeal to God's loving kindness. They defend the congregation. They come in between. There is a God of holy anger, and they stand between a nation that is guilty and deserving of His judgment fire. They're not bitter, they're not resentful, they don't plot their revenge, they do not even defend themselves, they pray for these same people. Those who have been so unkind, so unfair, so murderous in their intentions toward them, they pray for them. God spare them. They display here amazing trust in just how far it is possible for God's mercy to stretch. In His holy and just wrath, God has an arrow pulled on a bowstring aimed right at the heart of Israel and there is nothing to stop it but Him just releasing it. And they're done. It's history. And with that arrow poised to release and fly, Moses and Aaron plead with God for these people. Spare them. For the glory of your name, because of your steadfast kindness and love, because your mercy extends to sinners, spare them, we pray. Indeed, God starts, in fact, to cut down the people. But Moses springs into action in verse 46. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So 
So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and he ran into the midst of the assembly, and behold, the plague had already begun among the people, and he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. So as high priest, Moses implores Aaron to take his censer to interpose himself between God and the dying. Make atonement. The Hebrew word kafar speaks of propitiation, of satisfying the wrath of God, of answering to God's justice by sacrifice so as to appease His holy anger against sin. Do this by offering this incense. Apparently there was no time to find an animal sacrifice and burn that upon the altar. This would do. This demonstration, this symbol of prayer rising with a sweet smelling savor to the nostrils of God. This would stand between the nation and the holy anger of God. Now in one sense this may seem like a kind of silly practice to us. But I don't think when we understand the symbolism of this incense that it really is at all. God established this means by which Israel's sins could be covered through prayer. That it would be an image of how we approach Him. Just as we have taken the Lord's table today as a symbol of our approach to God through sacrifice. What picture does this narrative etch on our minds? What does it provide for us by way of sanctification? I think it's here in verse 48. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Aaron does not stand between the guilty and the innocent, like my dad and the dog, or like Gandalf and the Balrog, or like the French against the Germans in World War I. Aaron stands between the guilty and the dead. We could say it this way. He stands between the dead and the dead to rights. He stands between the guilty and God's wrath, taking a position between the two. And maybe I tap into your thought process here for some. You might hear just say, you know, there's a really good place for me to air the objection. Why is God so angry? What's wrong with that preacher? Isn't God a God of love? Why are we talking about all this wrath and anger and judgment? Is this just the God of the Old Testament? No, God has spoken of His long-suffering, gentle kindness, and we're seeing it here. But when you ask that question, why is God such an angry God? Why is everything here about judgment? To ask that question is to display the irrational blindness of these grumblers. God is so angry because people are so sinful. And He is utterly just in His anger. God is so angry because people are so sinful. But when we think of the angry wrath of God, don't think about your anger and mine. Our anger is often petty and unjust and brooding and manipulative and virtually always very small-minded. I think anger is an appropriate response in situations. I think Moses' anger here with the nation is an appropriate anger. 
But so often our anger is so horribly corrupted. That's not God's anger. This is just God being who he is with all of his purity and goodness. His anger is a product of pristine holiness. His anger is a product of his moral perfections. It is a product of his utterly pure heart. God could respond no other way and be God. God cannot remain free of sin in himself and be okay with sin in people. It's not who he is. And if you're putting this all together, let's bring in on top of that objection also this observation as we consider it these ways. And that's that he's no more pleased with your sin than he was with theirs. And if you've somewhere picked up that idea that God in the Old Testament is this God of wrath and anger and judgment, but now we see Him as a God of love and grace and kindness, that's a really broken way to read the Bible. It doesn't work on a hundred levels, and we could lay it out in a very clear case that God of the Old Testament is a God of love and grace and kindness. And if you can read out the anger and judgment of God from the New Testament then you're doing so with a scissors. He's the same God. But He's no more satisfied with our sin now than He was with theirs then. Are you a grumbler and a complainer? Do you commit adultery in your mind? Are you greedy, petty, self-centered and proud? Do you take what is not yours to have? Do you assert your autonomy in seeking sexual pleasures on your own terms? Do you gossip, lie, cheat on your taxes? Do you deny that Christ is Lord? God's holy anger rages against sin. And the arrow of his judgment is aimed at the heart of every sinner. Because God is God. And he can be no other. But the good news, obviously, of verse 48 is that someone comes between and the plague is stopped. It's serious stuff here. A lot of people died. But the plague was stopped, and in that is our hope. There is, of course, bad news also, verse 49. Those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. Back to the good news. God's priest stood between the judgment of God and sinners and God's judgment was stopped by this means. The good news is that God's priest can make atonement for sinners on God's terms. And the good news is that Aaron and Moses returned to the tent where God met with them for the good of the nation and they go back to normal business. 
The crisis for now is over and they're back at the tabernacle ministering through the sacrifices and the ritual and it's business as usual among God's people by His grace. It's maintenance mode. They went back to the entrance of the tent of meeting and the plague was stopped. As the Bible unfolds, The priestly paradigm of this narrative blossoms into full flower. And for those who have gathered around this table today, and for those of us who have rejoiced in the sacrifice of Christ, the theme is so clear to us, so evident to us. The New Testament builds on the paradigm of God's chosen priest standing to make atonement for sinners. And as in number 16, the effect of the sinner's forgiveness is that sin is covered on God's terms. And then in consequence of that forgiveness, to be reconciled to to God, to be granted a right standing with our holy God. How does that happen? And I say particularly to those that say, I don't really get these things. I don't have any sense that I'm reconciled with God. It's not too hard for me to figure that God's angry with my sin, but I don't know how I can be in fellowship with Him, how I can love Him, how He could love me. Grab this today. There's priest and there's atonement. The good news is you cannot advocate for yourself. You're dead to rights. That's the good news in some sense because we know we couldn't pull this off. The good news is that there is a priest who stands between you and the justice that you deserve from God and who atones for sin. That means he finds a way to cover the guilt of sin to satisfy the wrath of God in our place and to provide forgiveness of all the things we've done to break the law of God. This is Christ crucified and risen. He is now the final and great high priest. But before coming back to that thought, just for a moment, number 16 also reveals the possibility of tagging into a wrong priest. A priest not chosen by God, not operating on God's terms, and they are everywhere. The warning that is here for us today is that they will pull you down. They will take you with them into judgment. We've got to be ready for this and warned about it. There are many false priests who peddle false ideas of atonement. As you learn to discern those voices, there's a commonality in their message. And the message is, you can do this, you're not all that bad, if you'll just be good or at least a little better, you'll be alright with God. Now that message takes a lot of different forms and there's a lot of noise around it. But when it gets to the heart of it, it's saying, you need to trust in you, and all will be well. That's a false priest. That's a false prophet. And that person is going to bring you down with them if you hear them. The second piece that's often easy to find, maybe easier than the first, is that they want your money in their pocket. But that's another thing. 
Having said that, where it is trust in you or it is trust in a religious system, what is common to the false priest, the false prophet, is to deny the necessity of the atonement of God's priest. It's right there that you'll see it. It's a different priest, and there's no atonement for sin. If you're going to look through the world today to find where are people actually saying there's a sacrifice for sin, it's not there in the world religions. There's a cost you might need to make. There's things you might need to do. But there's no atonement for sin. There's no substitute that takes on the judgment you deserve as death. If we go deep back into certain dark corners of this world, there will be people who are very, we call them primitive who are actually closer to the truth because they are sacrificing animals today. It's no world religion. They gain no light. And they're as lost as anyone else, but they at least know someone must die, must die for me. They at least have that right. And God, through the ages, made this clear to Israel, someone must die for us because we deserve to die. God, as a holy God, cannot just dismiss that. And this is the thing that brings grief to our heart when we hear what the world religions say. You can be right with God, you can be counted good, and there's no justice. There's no atonement for sin. It's just you depending on you. We are reminded here, God sends a message to us that atonement must be on His terms, not on ours. And He reminds us here as we learn in Hebrews chapter 7 and following that there is now one great high priest. This whole system pointing to the one true high priest who would be the final high priest who would mediate the perfect sacrifice himself the blood of bulls and goats could never ultimately take away sin the rising of incense to the nostrils of God could never ultimately pay the price they were a picture of the only price that could be paid God himself in the person of his son coming to earth taking on flesh as a man and dying as a representative in the place of sinners. He stood in our place. He bore the judgment that we deserved. He made atonement for our sins. For those who come to trust His message, there is a confidence that is in Him alone. To Satan and death, Jesus yelled, You will not pass. And when he cried, it is finished, he stood between the living and the dead and said to his people, live. By this final high priest death and resurrection, Satan has been defeated. Sin's power has been broken and death has been conquered. If you, know, if you do not know Christ, as your Lord and Savior today, I plead with you, come to Him. 
You've got nothing to lose but destruction. You've got everything to gain, to turn to Him, to trust His way, to trust His great high priest. To those of us who know Christ as Savior, there is a rejoicing around this table and in one another's presence today as we celebrate and exalt in what Christ has done. But may we take our own censor, so to speak, to take the incense of Christ crucified and risen into this world and to let that incense rise from our life that others might smell it, that they might see it. As 2 Corinthians 2 puts it, for some it will be a savor of death to death. That is, it will be the smell, so to speak, of their heading to an eternity without Christ. But for others, by the grace of God, by the sovereign purposes of God, our lives proclaiming the message of Christ, that message smelling this sweet smell of forgiveness and of mercy will rise to those who come to Christ as Savior and by the mercies of God will rise to His throne as our lives speak this message of salvation in our great high priest. May God bring that about and may He bring into our lives those who know not Christ, into this assembly, those who hear that message and respond and may we be responding day by day. Have you responded? Have you really come to terms with a holy God who is angered by sin and will judge? Have you come to recognize yourself as a sinner who breaks His law? And have you come to see priest and atonement, Jesus Christ standing between me and judgment, His death paying the cost of my sin in my place, His resurrection granting me eternal life. Come to that message today. Come to that hope. Let's pray. Lord, we praise You for the way in which You have revealed Your Word. And we're awed by the centuries of revelation. The images, the rituals, the practices, the narratives that remind us of 